Nourish, gather, grow. Welcome to the Nourishing Liberty podcast. Our mission is to inspire and empower families and communities to nurture each other and the earth through our choices and interactions. We believe that nurturing our ecosystems is one of the greatest legacies we can leave future generations. We believe that individually we are important and valuable in this process, and together we create community. Nurture begins by nourishing ourselves and our communities, both physically and spiritually. Let's grow together. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Liz. How are you doing? Good, good. Here we are. Yes, two tired mamas. Tonight, two tired mamas. Indeed. And we're going to keep it kind of short tonight because part of the mission here is to stay nourished. And that means getting enough sleep. Yep. Yep. I had an 11 hour workday today at the uh, trolley. And so I am tired. <laughs> I bet you are. Wow. I'm so impressed that you're still uh, awake. Vertical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have a job that uh, feeds my energy and then simultaneously saps it. So <laughs> I get it. I get it. Well, today we're talking about local and short food supply chains. Supply chains. Supply That's chains. Becoming more and more important these days. It is. And I mean, I think it's always been important, but it's becoming, people are becoming more aware of the impact and the importance of supply chains and what that means to the food that we have in our homes or the food that we have available to us. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to ignore when grocery stores are uh, having empty shelves more and more. I see more and more posts about that. There's awareness of it. They're, they're talking about uh, grocery stores, tricks that they have about, um, how to put something on all that space so their shelves don't look so bare. And I mean, it's kind of jarring to go to the grocery store and see bare shelves. Um, Something very unsettling about it. Yeah, there really is. You know, a friend just sent me this article just this afternoon and it's uh, it's about the global food crisis. And one paragraph in particular stood out. It said, uh, new new UN global food price released on Friday showed global food prices in February surpassed a previous record set in 2011. About a quarter of the international wheat trade, about a fifth of corn and 12% of all calories traded globally come from Ukraine and Russia. Food exports in the region have been halted due to conflict and sanctions. This leaves us with a shrinking global food supply that may further price increases. Yeah, and I I did read something also about fertilizer. A lot of fertilizer comes from Russia. And I, it's puzzling. I I have to do some more investigation on what's so special about Russia and fertilizer when, I mean, fertilizer is basically poop. And seems like wherever there's cattle being uh, uh, herded and and ranched, there should be poop. (laughs) I don't know why it has to come all the way from Russia. Well, and and that's where it comes to relocalizing our food supply chains. 
the importance of it. I mean, when you think about how divorced we've become from knowing where our food comes from, it's shocking. It's really shocking. And thinking about, you know, what I just read, thinking about how many, uh, restaurants or bakeries or, and, and even large scale, how many of them are terrified right now because they're not going to be able to get the wheat they need if the prices are too high or if the availability is simply not there. And, you know, I'm, I'm not one to be an alarmist about this because I see that we have a lot of food available. It might not be the, what everybody wants when they want it, but that doesn't mean that I think we're all about to starve. I don't think that well, there's some of us who've been kind of alarmist for a long time and have done a little bit of prepping and we got some freeze dried stuff. But I mean, that that doesn't sustain you for 10 years. That's an no, emergency supply for, you know, to get you through maybe a month or two or just depending on however much space you have and how alarmist you feel. But, you know, eventually even your emergency stash and your bug out bag, you run out of that. And hopefully something has normalized or you've figured out how to live without or provide your own. Or you've reconnected to your community and you've shortened or localized your supply chain and you sleep a lot better at night. Right, there, there you just hit the nail on the head. Yeah. So Rachel, I mean, you wanna know what I fantasize about? And I, I sort of create these visions in my mind and imagine, I get carried away by it, really. Uh, so you know how, like in a lot of suburbia, there's neighborhoods and maybe every five or six blocks, you'll have a little playground or you'll have a little bit of park space. And when I look at that, or, or even like, if you look at the tracts of backyards that are all joined together in the suburban neighborhoods, right? I look at that and I see, oh, wow, you know, if, if we had different priorities, if we could come together as a community, that entire space could be turned into food production, whether it's a food forest or chickens roaming in that whole space or a few goats going around grazing. And not only would it provide food for that whole community, it would provide uh, networking, right? And I don't mean networking in that sort of business sense. I really mean that the, the strength of the social bonds. And I mean, imagine you have a small barn for the goats and you have a small or a mid-sized chicken coop. People take turns tending the animals and you have a fire pit, a central neighborhood fire pit where people can gather. I mean, it changes people's behavior when you have that kind of outdoor shared space and it relocalizes and strengthens those local food supply chains. So you're right, there wouldn't be that worry. You'd have food security in every neighborhood. Yeah, I think as this uh, economic malaise wears on and, you know, who knows what's going to happen with Ukraine, it's, it seems to be turning into some form of a world war, quite literally, with uh, the international community uh, piling on, picking a side. Um, it's scary to watch, but, you know, it... it Maybe it'll de-escalate, but maybe it'll escalate. But um, it's it could realign our priorities very locally, just like you said. 
And um, it's, it's lovely that you can see that as a positive vision, maybe a silver lining <laughs> to a very, very dark cloud. Um, but I, th I think people will reprioritize, re you know, on an as needed basis. It, it'll become a necessity eventually. Yes, and to be clear, I'm I'm with you on the the tragedy and travesty of what's happening, and uh, my this imagining of seeing local food sources in neighborhoods is years and years old. It's not it's not just yeah. relevant to this crisis. It's relevant to our lives in every period and every era. It's relevant that if we have food security and we know we have food security right there in our communities, we behave differently. Mm -hmm. It would be lovely if people could come together out of a positive desire rather than a negative necessity, but yep. we'll see what happens. <laughs> we will. And at the very least, I've been looking at what do these supply chain crises mean to people here in North America? And how can we, in some ways, I want to say, I think our best way of helping in any international crisis is by making sure that we're not going to contribute to it by fighting over food locally. Yeah, because, yeah, duh, what do they say? You're basically uh, nine meals away from chaos or something if people go hungry for a very short amount of time, they become violent very quick if they can't feed their families and if they themselves are hungry. Yes. And, you know, I think, again, I mean, I, I think there's a big difference between, and there's a huge gap between um, not having enough wheat to make all the things and being hungry. Like we still have a long ways to go before we get there but I, I, so. I think well I mean I think there will be shortages of some particular things without there being uh not enough of everything to sustain the people I maybe I'm just more alarmist <laughs> <laughs> that very well could be I'm a worry wart I worry about these things well we're also going into spring so guess what that means Planting. Planting. Yes. There is no way better to get a short food supply chain and a local food supply chain than growing food in your own yard. I try every year and I usually fail. It's mostly a 90% fail, failed effort. So I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping <laughs> that you can well, sprinkle some magic pixie dust <laughs> on me somehow and turn me into a successful gardener. Somehow. How about green thumb dust? Yes, yes, whatever. Yes. Whatever you got, Liz, lay it on me. <laughs> well, you're the one that's successfully raised uh, chickens and eggs for food. Yes. Yes, I have done that, um, but chickens are not allowed in the HOA, so maybe I either need to get on the board and change that, or <laughs> or I need to get better at uh, growing plants. <laughs> yeah, you'll you you can do it, Rachel. I believe yeah, yeah. in you. Okay, totally, totally, and we'll talk about 
specific techniques and strategies and what are the biggest hangups and challenges. We'll get that squared away. But the key is to keep planting. Don't give up. Don't give up at all. Never, ever, ever give up. So when you think of short food supply chains, what do you think of? I think of farmer's market. That's what I think of. Yeah. Like uh, not buying food from the other side of the planet (laughs) and getting as close to your home as possible. That's, that would definitely be a part of it. Now to, to clarify the two, the differences between the short food supply chain and the local food supply chain is that with the short food supply chain, it's actually fewer hands. So for example, I'm connected with a farmer in Greece and now that's not exactly local, but it's still direct. So it wouldn't be a local supply chain, but it is a short supply chain. Oh, that's interesting. Directly from that farm to me. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's not going to a distributor and then to a grocery store. So what does that mean? It means they have better security in terms of being able to sell all their product when they know their end user, right? They're not going to get dropped. They don't have one huge wholesale account or three huge wholesale accounts that could drop them and then they can't sell their product, right? They've got their own connections to the people using their product. So it offers security on their end and it offers security on my end. Right, I have a relationship with the farmer. I actually buy um, coffee sometimes from a, a Haitian um, coffee company that uh, deals directly with Haitian coffee farmers, um, yep. and it's really good coffee. So now that you bring it up, that's a short supply chain for coffee. Exactly, and it's great when you can offer that because of the security it offers both ends of it. Yeah. And of course, you know, olive oil and coffee don't grow where we are. So the things that do grow where we are, you can get them both short supply chain and local supply chain. And of course, the local, the more local and the short of a supply chain, the more stable it is. Do you have thoughts about um, seasonality, like vegetables and fruits that don't grow it, like getting strawberries in the winter? You know, so it has to come from the other side of the world. Do you have oh, thoughts yeah. on that? <laughs> so my thoughts on that are, are, I guess I would say it's more of a philosophy that here in the mid-Atlantic region, we get strawberries for about three weeks a year, maybe four weeks. And time to celebrate. When you get those strawberries, when those strawberries come in, you get them and you enjoy them. And then when they're gone, they're gone. And so you get to look forward to them the rest of the year. And you know what, Rachel, once you grow your own strawberries or pick your own from a local farm or just have that relationship with a local farm that's growing them, it's hard to go back to those grocery store winter, (laughs) those hard white strawberries. I mean, that is not really, it's not the same thing at all. So I am all about, celebrating something when it's in season, looking forward to it, anticipating it, and then really enjoying it and appreciating it. Yeah. Yeah. So part of that would be understanding what grows in what season and what grows around where you are. And just understanding that, you know, that that should be a big part of your uh, food 
a big part of your diet, correct? If, if it grows where you are and it's in season, it, that should be emphasized in your diet. Yes? Absolutely. 100%. Yep. So that means summertime, melons, you get the berries, you get all those amazing fruits and you enjoy them. And then fall, you get your squashes, your apples and enjoy those. I mean, at all of these foods have so much flavor, so much character to offer. And you really get to celebrate them. And if you think about this, this time of year right now, this springtime, when the days are getting longer, I mean, that's when you're getting eggs in abundance, right? Because mm -hmm. the chickens, the daylight is telling the chickens to lay more eggs. True. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when, when you have that, that feeling of celebration for what's in season, you know, you appreciate a local food supply more. You really do. And, and you begin to, to notice new things that you didn't notice before. And let me tell you, there is a world of difference between the strawberries from your own yard or the melons from your neighbors or the local farm versus what came from a field in California and spent a week traveling. Yeah. It, it, it can't possibly be as fresh as what comes from next door. Yeah, it's not. And so you're missing. So what I'm, what I guess what I'm getting at is that when, when you're ready to celebrate that flavor of the, and the freshness of right, of right here locally, you're not going to miss the, the ones from far away as much, you know, it's not going to be, oh, I, I want that in January because it's not the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess you can preserve, like you can make strawberry preserves or I don't know, do, do they freeze well, or I don't know for the, they freeze the great. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. For those winter months when not much in particular is growing, you still got to eat something. Absolutely. And you know, that's what beef is for too. That's what the winter vegetables are for. I mean, think about how people would preserve it and grains, of course, grains and beans and rice, the winter veggies. And understanding that these are what store well, the root vegetables, they store great. You're still going to get eggs every day. You're just maybe, maybe six a week instead of seven a week, right? In the winter months, but you're still going to get eggs, a lot of them. And you're going to have your, um, your greens. Like in this region, we'll get uh, kale, will grow pretty much all winter. Really? Uh, even, mm-hmm. All, all those big hearty greens, collards, kale, some of the mustard greens, and especially even if you have a very limited amount of, um, not even, it doesn't even have to be a greenhouse, any kind of low tunnel, any kind of space like that, that just captures a little bit of solar heat. You're going to get those greens are going to keep going. Spinach, lettuce will be a little harder in the winter, but you've got lettuce all through the fall and all through the spring. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about local supply chains. Yeah, local supply chains is when you keep it within a certain vicinity. And you know what? There's definitions of local and you can adopt a definition of local if you want. Some people like to say it's 100 mile radius. And then some people will use the term hyper local to mean something within a, I don't know, 10 or 25 mile radius. And it's, it's the same concept. It's really like, are you eating food that grows within your bioregion? Yeah. Of course, 
the most hyper local you can get is in your backyard in like a victory garden. Didn't you say you saw an article about victory gardens making a comeback? Yes, that was the same article I read from a few minutes ago. They were talking about how with the supply chain crisis um, that some, some are beginning to encourage planting a victory garden and how that has been a historic response to war so that people, Americans can grow their own food and rely less on imports. Yeah, the last thing a government wants, I mean, it's bad PR when your people are starving. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like the best way to get food security is to encourage your people to be a little bit more self-sufficient. Absolutely. And, and also, I think, I mean, I keep going back to this, Rachel. I mean, you know me, I, I love the idea of people coming together and building community together. And I, I love this idea of taking common ground, even if it's individually owned, it's, it's like, we're all staring into each other's backyards right now. Yeah. Can we just take down the fences and build a way to grow food? <laughs> I mean, isn't that, couldn't we build neighborhoods around food production? We could design this differently. I mean, right yeah. now it's neighborhoods are built around golf courses. Yeah. Do we really need another golf course in the world? And, yeah, and do we really need lawns that require maintenance and effort just to make them look nice, but they don't really produce anything useful? <laughs> so yeah, you, you, we have to battle HOAs in order to reimagine a lot of that because I moved to an HOA, not happily, but you know, but I mean, the, the thing is the homeowners are in charge of it. So if homeowners came together and thought about this, and if there was more of a shift of the Overton window, public opinion, so, so to speak, then, you know, maybe we could have more luck reimagining how we think about yards. I get it. And I completely agree. And I think that as our world changes around us, as it inevitably does, we, we might begin to see collectively, we might begin to see different priorities and adjust to those priorities. Yep. So I went to a farmer's market on Saturday. Yay, that is, so there's your local and short yeah. food supply chain. Local short, yeah, it, we have such a fantastic farmer's market here in St. Augustine. It's amazing. I, and I don't rare, I don't often get a Saturday off. So they uh, scheduled me uh, off that day. So I was so excited. Took my whole family, everyone loves to go to the farmer's market, even the boys, they don't like to go many places, but they're, they're always up for a trip to the farmer's market. And um, I saw at least three um, cattle ranchers there. Like they have beef that's grown on their local farm egg producers, uh, dairy. I got me some raw milk for pet consumption only. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. And vegetables. So many beautiful vegetables. I got these Brussels sprouts that are, that are as big as tennis balls, <laughs> the huge ones and enjoyed them so much. And that night I made a flank steak that I got from a grass fed cow at the farmer's market and roasted Brussels sprouts and bell peppers 
all roasted for my family. And that felt good. Wow. Like, it sounds amazing. Yeah. I was like, Liz would be proud of me. <laughs> I am. That's wonderful. Made an entire meal, a steak dinner with veggies, all from the farmer's market. So that was well, fun. You're in Florida. So you, Florida has such an early growing season. It's wonderful. We must have a long growing season too. I haven't been here for a full year, so I'm still learning about the agriculture and the patterns down here. So. Good. Well, I'll, I will definitely give you some tips on what to grow and when and how and take a look at your space and we'll get you set up. Cool. And I do have a citrus tree of some kind growing in my backyard. It was here when we got here. It can't be very old. There's two of them actually, but I, I know it's a citrus, but I don't know whether it's an orange or a lemon or a grapefruit or what it is. But um, I, I want to know how to take care of it so that eventually it'll give me citrus. Yeah, there you go. In my victory garden. Well, I know it's getting late for both of us. Yeah. So this, I consider this conversation to be one, an ongoing conversation because we can talk about supply chains for years. I know you and I, I know me, and I know this is a topic of deep importance to both of us. And it's very complicated and complex. And exactly. there's, there's a lot to the issue and it's only going to become a more important topic um, as the world turns, turns and exactly. turns. So leaving everybody with one parting thought on supply chains, what would it be? Um, I, I would say it's important to think about supply chains, know where your food comes from. It doesn't just magically appear at the grocery store. Where did it come from? How did it get there? What are the vulnerabilities in the pieces of that puzzle? Um, gas price has a lot to do with the trucks that bring you your food. Um, so there's a lot that goes into supply chains and the more complicated the supply chain is for that particular object and all of those ingredients, the more like, the more, the more at risk it is, um, to all kinds of forces in, in the world right now. So yeah. It's important to understand these things, to think about these things, and maybe come up with ideas to have ingredients in your diet that are less vulnerable to supply chain shocks. So great, Rachel. Such wisdom right there. And I would say, in addition to that, think about packaging. Because even if a food is available locally in a local food supply chain, what if that packaging isn't available? I heard that that was why um, a bunch of dairy farmers had to dump like gallons and gallons of milk because there was no milk cartons to put the milk in and it was just going to spoil. I, I heard that there's things like that happening. So yeah, packaging. Yeah, packaging. And that is a, a, a piece, one piece of the vulnerability puzzle that you were just talking about. But, you know, when when people talk to me about our local sources. And I say, you know what? They've got plenty of food. They're going to keep milking those cows. But the challenge is the packaging right now. So it's kind of an invisible component that we don't always think about. But if you know, 
I've got these reusable glass jars on my pantry shelf and that can be makeshift packaging if I need to go make a run to the farm and they don't have packaging. So always kind of keep that in mind in the back of your, in the back of your mind. Think about how would I repackage this? Interesting. That's an interesting thought. Yep. Some local farms do use those glass bottles. And if you return them when you're done, they'll give you like a, they'll buy it back from you. <laughs> yep. So that's less waste and less expense for them. So that's a good deal all the way around. Yes, indeed. All right, Rachel, we'll continue this soon. Yep. Lots to discuss on this topic, but for now, mama's got to rest. <laughs> yes. Go get some rest. All right. You too. Good night. All right. Good night. Bye-bye, Liz.